0: Good evening, everybody. I hope everybody is doing well. I'm glad you're tuning in for our midweek Bible study, our uh, which we affectionately refer to as CBS, College Bible Study at Lakeview Baptist Church in our college ministry. If you have a Bible with you, I hope you'll open it to the Gospel of Matthew uh, chapter 6, our focus tonight. If you've been with us, you, you may know uh, what our focus is on. We're in the Lord's Prayer. We're studying through the Lord's Prayer, and we're getting closer to the end of, of this study. We're actually going to wrap it up next week. And just so you know, next Wednesday will be the last midweek Bible study uh, for this school year. We don't do a midweek Bible study like this during the summer months because uh, just fewer students here and uh, we'll resume these midweek Bible studies in the fall in August. But I will say for those of you who are going to be in Auburn, those in our college ministry, who are going to be here in Auburn during this summer, uh, we do get together on Monday nights uh, and read through, usually read through a book together, uh, not necessarily a book of the Bible, but just a, a different um, book. We have, we've read Kevin DeYoung's Taking God at His Word before. Last summer, we read uh, Tony Reinke's book, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You, which is a very important book I commend to your reading. But this summer, we're going to read a book by Re- Rebecca McLaughlin called Confronting Christianity. Um, it's, a, it's a great book uh, that uh, is one, it's worth reading uh, very carefully. It talks through different objections that Christians often have to deal with in the world to the faith and how to, how to defend them, um, and, and it's super, super insightful. It's a, you can find it. It's a nice hardcover book. You can find it on Amazon for about $17, but uh, we do have a few copies on hand, Uh, if you're going to be in town, if you're going to be in Auburn and be at that Bible study with us, uh, for you, we have, uh, a few copies on hand that, that we can sell to you for a little bit less than what you can find on Amazon. So, but we need to, we need you to let us know that you're going to be here and plan to be part of that book study. And we'll, we'll, uh, we'll try to get you get one of those books in your hands. Um, but like I said, tonight we're in the Lord's prayer again, we're, we're getting closer, like I said, to the end of this, in end of this study, um, tonight we're going to look at the last two petitions of the prayer before the benediction. So far we have looked at the opening invocation, our Father in heaven, that's how we initially address the Lord in our prayer, uh, our Father in heaven, before it proceeds through seven different petitions, seven different requests we're asking of the Lord. Uh, the first three of those, of those requests have to do with our concern for, for the Lord, for His glory, Hallowed be your name, His glory, his, his His kingdom, His will, to be done on earth, as it is in heaven. So His glory, His kingdom, His will, and then for the last four petitions, the the focus turns to our needs, our daily bread, right, our our forgiveness, our sanctification, our perseverance in the faith, and it and then it ends with that traditional doxology. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory. That it's often footnoted in our Bibles because it probably wasn't original to the prayer, but it is a thoroughly biblical um, uh, doxology as we saw a couple of weeks ago. We saw uh, from probably much of it was gotten from Solomon's prayer in Second Chronicles. But, um, but anyway, we'll consider that next week. But tonight, we're going to consider the petitions found in verses, in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 6. And so if you have found that place in your Bible, I hope you'll look and follow along with me as I read beginning In verse 9, we'll read through verse 13, as well as the footnote uh, doxology at the end. Jesus said, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then footnoted at the bottom, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As the scriptures say that all flesh is grass and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word. Thank you that that as we are all grass and we fade, but your word stands forever, thank you for that. Thank you that that this word that stands forever is your holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, clear, and necessary word. We do thank you that that it is in this word that the Holy Spirit speaks to us in these words, by these words, with these words. And so to that end, we pray that you would give us minds to understand the truth that we come across in these petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Give us minds to understand. Give us hearts to embrace and and love that truth that we've been made to understand. Would you give us wills to obey whatever it leads us to do? Give me the help that I need to teach and give us all ears to hear, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, like I said, our our, our focus is going to be on the petitions found there in verse 13. Look there again where he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, I said uh, our focus is going to be on the petitions here, plural, the petitions, Uh, because I I say that plural because even though they're related, I do think verse 13 uh, has two somewhat distinct petitions. One, lead us not into temptation, and two, Deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. And then count them as two. That brings it to uh, seven petitions, which I think are intended in the prayer. And as we look at them, we're going to look at both of them tonight. As we look at them, I want to look carefully because the meaning of this, these petitions is not immediately clear when we when begin to think about it and, and look at it more closely. So I want to think about these petitions from three different respects. First, I want to think about the context of the, these petitions, how how they relate to the ones that went came right before it. So, what are the what's the context within the prayer? What's the context of these petitions in verse thirteen? Then we're going to think about the meaning of it. The meaning of it. How to think about um, uh, these petitions in a wider biblical context and what it, what it does mean, what it doesn't mean. This is going to take some careful thought because these verses or these petitions can be prone to, to misunderstanding or a little bit of confusion. And then finally at the end, I want to come around and, and, and see the assurance, the assurance that we have in praying this petition by connecting it, uh, this petition, to the life of Christ lived as our substitute and as our Savior. I think I think if we connect the, what he's instructing us to pray here, connect this to the life that he already lived in our place, I think it gives us great assurance in praying this petition in our own prayer life. That being said, and knowing how we're going to proceed, let's begin by looking for a minute at the context of the petitions. We don't need to spend a lot of time here thinking about the context to get our bearings for a clearer understanding of, of the petitions. But just, just like um, we noticed last week in in verse 12, notice that verse 13 begins with a little grammar lesson, with a coordinating conjunction. That's a fancy word of saying the word and. (laughs) It begins with and, a coordinating conjunction, which immediately connects it with what came before it. It's in a a succession, in the same line of thought, right? and, and, And connects it to what came before it in verse 12. But if you look at verse 12, it also begins with the word and which connects it to what came before it in verse 11 in some way. Let's consider how these, these, uh, these verses 11, 12, and 13 are connected with each other and how that impacts how we understand verse 13. First, how does verse 13 uh, and the petitions found there, how do they relate to the petition found in verse 12? Right. Look, look there again, where verse 12 pray, we prayed, and forgive us our debts... As we also have forgiven our debtors, and recall, if you if you didn't, if you missed last week, you can still go uh, find our our uh, social media pages, and you can you can rewatch the thing the 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 Bible study there. But we, if you were uh, uh, in for that, you you'll recall that we said debts in that petition is is referring to the the same reality that is described in verses fourteen and fifteen. Uh, with the word trespasses, where Jesus said, for if you forgive others their trespasses, uh, verse 15, if you do not forgive others their trespasses. So within Matthew right here, debts within the prayer and trespasses right after the prayer in explanatory notes, they are two ways of referring to the same thing, the same thing which Luke, in his version of the, of the Lord's Prayer in his gospel referred to as sins. Luke eleven four 4 says, forgive us our sins. And so uh, the, the idea of the fifth petition in, in verse 12 has to do with our sin and our guilt before the Lord and our need of his forgiveness. Our need of his forgiveness. In the first instance, with our need of his forgiveness so that we can be and stand justified in his sight. We cannot stand justified in his sight without his forgiveness. So in the first instance, to pray, forgive us our debts, forgive us our trespasses, forgive us our sins, and the first instance has to do with coming to him the first time in repentance of our sins and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, whereby we can stand justified and forgiven in his sight. But in the second instance, verse 12, forgive us our debts, also carries uh the expectation of ongoing repentance, ongoing confession of our sins. And how do we understand the need for that? Because ongoing repentance, ongoing confession is the fruit in our lives uh, and evidence in our lives that we are justified in his sight, that we have come to saving faith, that we are born again and regenerated in Christ. That, that, That just as sorry and repentant of our sins, were we the first day, because we are born again by the Spirit, we are that sorry and repentant every day of our lives, and we have ongoing confession. It's just evidence of being born again, right? So if verse 12 has to do with our justification before God, and then out of that flows seamlessly the thoughts of verse 13 connected with the word and, then then verse 13 actually has to do with our sanctification before the lord our, our our ongoing pursuit of godliness and and purity and holiness think about it if you're thinking about the connection between verses 12 and 13 between justification and sanctification people who have already come to to the place of knowing themselves to be sinners before god and who have thrown themselves on the mercy of god in christ they cert that same person certainly doesn't from that point on uh, trust themselves any more than they did the first time or rely on their own goodness going forward to please the Lord. So verse 12, so we ask for his help, right, in verse 13. So verse 12 has to do with our justification before God, forgive us. Verse 13 has to do with our our sanctification before God, Lord, continue to help us to walk in holiness. But then that's, you have to ask the question as well. That's how it relates to verse 12, but how does verse thirteen in the petitions there? How do they relate to verse eleven? And what did we read in verse eleven? Give us this day our daily bread, and and um, and I think that that the most natural connection that we find with verse eleven uh, to verse thirteen is that daily emphasis of it. Give us this day our daily bread. Same kind of thought pattern connected to the to two verses later. Daily, not only are we in need of his material provision, signified by bread, but daily also we confess our sins and remember his forgiveness in Christ, that's verse 12, and daily we ask for his grace to walk in holiness and not be overcome by temptation and evil, that's verse 13. This is a daily need, and we need it just as much as we need food on our table. That's the context of the, these petitions in verse 13. We're talking about our, our ongoing daily sanctification and our growth and our, our progress in, in holiness and in, and in godliness. Knowing that, then, let's look a little bit closer at uh, the, the text and try to understand the meaning of these petitions. Because at first glance, when you read, and lead us not into temptation, at the very least, that phrase, delivers from the evil one is not, or delivers from evil is not hard to understand. But the phrase, lead us not into temptation, it can be a little confusing because um, as, it is, as it is worded here, we're asking God not, not to lead us into temptation. But as soon as we say, lead us not into temptation to the Lord, and this is why it can be confusing to some, Sometimes other passages pop into mind that seem to rub up against that. I'm thinking, for example, about James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, where James clearly says that God never does that. God never... Uh, turn over and look, and look at, that, at, at that passage in, in James. In James chapter 1, uh, verses 13 and, and 14... Yeah, and and James very clearly says, beginning of verse thirteen, let no one say when he is tempted, "I'm being tempted by God," for God cannot be tempted by evil, or with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. Uh, so how do we how do we square that with "Lead us not into temptation"? If James says God doesn't tempt anyone, right? but each person, and he goes on in, in verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So our, our own desires are the root uh, uh, in us of our temptations. Even when uh, our those temptations are externally introduced to us, so I see something or I hear something, something is put in, brought to my attention that causes me to stumble and sin, it is still what what my own heart does with that thing that I've seen. It's still my own heart that does with, does what, with what I just heard or was in, brought to mind. It's what my heart does with it that causes it to be sin in me. So it's not God who, who tempts me, it's my own heart that does this. So on the one hand, for that reason, to pray, lead, lead us not into temptation can be a little confusing because scripture seems to tell us God doesn't tempt anyone, so why do I pray to God, lead me not into temptation? On the other hand, there's another reason why um, uh, these these this request can be a little confusing, because on the other hand, we do have scores of passages throughout the Bible in which God is said to test his people, uh, and that is very clear, no doubt. That's clear in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the best example in the Old Testament is, is the story in Genesis 22 of Abraham and Isaac, where God sort of tests Abraham to see what is in his heart. When he tells, you know, God made Isaac uh, the promise back in chapter 12, and again in 15, and, and again in 17, that Abraham was going to have a son, and that son was going to be his heir, and it was through that son that the Messiah, the Savior, would one day come but then, to test him, God told Abraham to sacrifice that son, sacrifice and kill his son, his only son, Isaac, the son of promise. And when when Abraham was about to faithfully obey that command of God, remember, remember why Scripture later tells us you know, that could be kind of shocking. Why, and it still is sort of shocking. But what, how was Abraham reasoning? Um, that he was about to obey this command, he assumed, he he, he had convinced himself based on God's promise that God would, if, if he went through and killed Isaac, that God would raise Isaac from the dead because God would not be untrue to his promise, but as soon as he was about to obey and, and, and sacrifice his son Isaac, the Lord stopped him, right, and, and, and he, and, you know, God says, now I know that, that you really trust me. It, it was speaking in a human way, but, but God put Abraham to the test in that moment to, to bring to light the strength of his faith, right? But the testing of Abraham in his life with Isaac, um, he, Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel, and that, that testing of Abraham would be repeated later in the life of the nation of Israel uh, again and again and again. So for example, the Lord tells the wilderness generation in Deuteronomy 8:2. He says, "And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments." Right? So clearly the in the Old Testament, God tested his people and it and it says uh to know testing you to know what was in your heart. Now when it says he did that to know what was in your heart, that doesn't mean that God didn't know, but when it said to know what was in your heart should rather be understood as to reveal what was in your heart because it says that he tested them in the wilderness that he might humble them. That he might humble them. He knew that they needed to be humbled. He knew what was in their heart. He knew that they were wavered. And his testing of them would reveal that. It would bring, it would bring their waywardness to light. Uh, and his purpose in bringing that to light was to humble them into repentance and into a, a deeper reliance on him, which they sometimes did, but sometimes didn't. But later in Israel's history, King David prayed, for example, in Psalm 26, 2, he said, he prayed, prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and mind. That is David asking the Lord to do that very thing. We, we, that's how it can be confusing. We see things like that, and then, and then we see in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into that, but David's praying, do that. How is this? this idea? But this idea of te- God's testing it runs all through the Old Testament, and it also comes into the New Testament. Let I me mean, just give you two examples, in both from uh, First Peter, uh, in the New Testament. Peter, you know, you can turn over there and look with me in First Peter, but you know, Peter was writing to persecuted and and uh, beleaguered Christians. He's encouraging them to to um, uphold, hold up, and and to to press on and and persevere. And so he tells them. Uh, in the first chapter of 1 Peter, verses 6 and 7, he, per- he tells them, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, we'll come back to that phrase, various trials, in a minute. But notice also that phrase, if necessary. If necessary. Who decides that? Who, who decides if it is necessary for us to undergo uh, various trials? Well, the Lord decides that. If the Lord is deciding that it is necessary for you or, to, or for me to go through various trials, that indicates that these various trials are not random. They have a purpose behind them. And that's, how, that's why it's another reason that, uh, that it's important to know the character of God in Scripture. But even later in 1 in Peter in chapter 4, uh, in verse 12, he writes, Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial, fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Again, we note the phrase fiery trial, or rather trial by fire. Why do we note these phrases? Uh, Because the idea is there in the Old Testament, and also the idea appears in the New Testament but when you come to the New Testament, what we're going to find is there's not just a, a general Id- and consistent idea about this running through the, these passages of the New Testament, but there's a consistent word that is running through all these different passages in the New Testament. This, this same word that keeps showing up. And, um, and I'm going to use this word, I'm going to tell you what this word is because I'm going to use it again and again for the remainder of, of our time together to show you Uh, the consistency of of the usage. The Greek word is pyrosmos, pyrosmos. Um, I don't want the whole study to turn into a Greek lesson. I want you to just note that word, pyrosmos. And I want you to note how that word is running through all of these texts. So for example, Peter tells them in verse 12, not to be surprised at the fiery pyrosmos. Um, that when it when it happens to them as though something strange were happening to them a fiery pyrosmos don't don't be surprised when that comes your way or he tells them uh, back in in chapter one at the passage we looked at in verses 6 and seven that they need to rejoice though now for a little while uh, if necessary you have been grieved by various pyrosmoi that's that's uh Plural, various pyrosmoi. Don't and if, and 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 the, and the fifth. The it's funny that in the in the. It, don't be surprised if necessary you experience these various pyrosmoi. Uh, God deems it necessary sometimes to bring these pyrosmoi, our way. But then in the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray, "Lead us not into pyrosmos." Lead us not. It's the same word. Translated fiery trial, fiery pyrosmos. Uh, Jesus says, lead us not into pyrosmos, even though it's translated temptation. There it's the same Greek word. Well, what have we done now, right? Well, we've added another layer of complexity because on the one hand, lead us not into pyrosmos means temptation, right? And James says that God doesn't tempt anyone. So what does that mean? And on the other hand, lead us into piros, lead us not into pyrosmos means trial like, like it does elsewhere in 1 Peter. But we see that God does precisely that. So why ask him not to? In the first instance, if it's temptation, well, God doesn't do that anyway. So why ask him not to do it? On the other hand, if it's trial, why ask him not to do it if we see in Scripture he often does that, and sometimes it's necessary for him to do that. How do we make sense of all this? Because the Bible writers were not ignorant, right? The Bible writers were not ignorant, and the Holy Spirit, who inspired these these writings, never contradicts himself. I mean, when we have when we have puzzling situations like this in the Bible, it is our own finitude, right, that that makes these things murky for us. It is, it is our own finitude that it's our, we struggle for clarity. We struggle for clarity, but clarity is there to be found. It's just our struggle to find it. And it's considerations in trying to find that clarity here. It is those kinds of considerations that I just outlined regarding the fifth petition that cause some translators of the Bible and some interpreters of the Bible to understand lead us not into temptation, more, instead of using those words, they they understand it or translate it more as the sentiment of save us from the time of trial. You actually may see um, the Lord's Prayer in in some uh, modern prayer books worded that way. Uh, The New Revised Standard Version, for example, the, the New Revised Standard translates it and do not bring us to the time of trial. Do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. But even that, I think, save us from the time of trial, or don't bring us to the time of trial. Even that, I feel like it has to be understood with careful precision. Because let me just quote Wesley Hill, who wrote a great uh, little little book on um, the Lord's Prayer. He he wrote, in light of all that we've just talked about, he wrote. Whatever else the petition, lead us not into temptation, means, it cannot mean that God will spare us from the searing heat of the refiner's fire. So where does it lead us? How do we put, how do we understand all this and how do we put it all together? I do like how save us from the time of trial brings together all these different strands of biblical testimony in the sense that while God doesn't, as James says, actively tempt anyone to sin and evil, we will see in the life of Jesus that the Spirit of God drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Not, by, not tempted to evil by the Spirit, but tempted, he was tempted by the evil one. He was tempted by the devil, but it was the Spirit who drove him there to be tempted by the evil one. Uh, and hence we pray, rescue us from the evil one. That's a that's a way of thinking about it. But also save us from the time of trial also fits the 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 biblical testimony that that God does bring his into the lives of his people. It brings trial and testing into the lives of his people. Peter says sometimes it's necessary. But what he doesn't do is abandon us there. He doesn't leave us there unaided, unhelped in the time of trial. He saves us out of it. Yeah, he brings it into our lives, but he walks with us uh, through that. I mean, it's almost like the, the sentiment found in Isaiah 43, that lovely passage, when he says, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you I have called you by name, you are mine. But then listen to what it says When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel your Savior. So he, he brings us into the times of trial and testing, but he doesn't leave us there. He doesn't abandon us there. The way the New Testament might put this in 1 Corinthians 10:13, and we'll use this Greek word again to get you the flavor of what Paul's talking about. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10:13, "No pyrosmos, whether that's temptation or trial or testing, no pyrosmos has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the pyrosmos, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. When he brings us to the time of trial, he will, in his own good time and in his own good way, bring us out of it. He will deliver us out of it. He will deliver us from the evil or from the evil one. That in in the Lord's prayer, deliver us from evil, deliver us from the evil one both are legitimate translations of that Greek word and good or are, are uh, both are good translations so ha- having having when he brings us out of the trial he 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 will bring us out having done his good sanctifying work in us in the process remember it's our sanctification that is in view in verse 13 how and why does god sometimes bring us into these trials into these times of testing um why does he even do that, and how does he do it? I love the way some of our old confessions talk about this. Uh, so the the um, Westminster Confession of Faith and the 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 Baptist uh, edition of that, the Second London Confession of Faith. Here's how they put it, and just listen. This is in older English, so I'll try to clarify when need be, but but it's not it's not impossible to understand. Listen carefully to what they're saying in the in the confession. They confess their faith that the most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season, leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own heart to chastise them from For their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for other just and holy ends. So that whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and for their good. It's always for our good. And, and think back through the reasons that, that that paragraph in the confession says why he does this. To, sometimes it's to allow us to suffer the consequences of our own sinful choices. But that's not just because he's mean. That's, that's, that's because he's good and he doesn't want us to make that mistake again. I do that with my own children sometimes. I let them suffer the consequences of their own bad choices. That is to teach them not to make those bad choices again. It's to, and, it, and sometimes he, he leaves us and lets those things happen and trials to come our way to, to make, make us aware of just how corrupt our hearts are and how deceitful our hearts can be. I need to know that about my own heart and sometimes trials are the only way that I can become aware of it. Why show us that? The confession says to humble us before him. why? So that not just so that we know that he's God and I'm not and you, you you need to be humbled, you need to be taken down a notch. It's not like that. it's so that he can then raise us up humbly to a closer, and more constant fellowship with him, it says. That's a beautiful picture. And and to guard us against all future sin. That's the idea that we're after in the fifth and sixth petitions here in verse 13. We know that trying times come from his hand. They will come from his hand. And we know that with those trying times that he brings into our lives, temptations will also come with them. Temptations from the evil one, temptations to do evil that come from our own hearts. But what we pray, when we pray this this petition in the Lord's Prayer, is we pray and we trust that he will save us through it. He's not gonna abandon us in the middle of it. Uh, He will deliver us out of it. And along the way, he will make us more like Christ in the process. How do we know that? How do we know that? How can we be sure of that? Again, I think if we think... uh, again, broadly about this, this, the context of this prayer, we can find assurance that these things are true when we connect these petitions with the life of Christ. And, that, and that's what I want to think finally about quickly, the assurance that we can find here. And I just want to take you to two instances in the life of Christ that are pertinent here. The first is just a page or two before this in chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4. And when you find that place in Matthew chapter 4, just look with me um, in in verse 1, okay? So in in chapter 3 at the end, Jesus had just come up out of the waters of baptism, and we read in chapter 4 verse 1, then after the baptism, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, when we, in our college minister, when we've looked at this several times, we we often focus on how Jesus here was repeating in his own life um, the history of Israel. You know, they, they went through the waters of the Red Sea. He came through the waters of baptism. When they came through the Red Sea, they went into the wilderness. So did he for 40 years, for 40 days, right? So there's a lot of parallels here. And those are important parallels because what they show us is that he was living his life as a representative of his people, right? But, and he was fulfilling the law on their behalf and, I, and all who would believe. But for our purposes tonight, um, I want to point out that when it says he was the, led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, to be tempted there is the verb form of the noun pyrosmos. It's just pyrosmos made into a verb. Right? And this is the verb form here. So we see from this, right that Jesus in, in, in going into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus was going into his own pyrosmos. And right? He was going into his own time of trial for 40 days. And, and uh, Jesus is undergoing the very trials, the very pyrosmos that He mentions in the Lord's Prayer. And as we mentioned before, it is the the devil here who, it is Satan who is the agent of the temptation. He's the agent of the evil, right? But it is the Spirit of God who led him, drove him, in Luke's gospel, literally threw him out into the wilderness to be tempted. Why did the Spirit drive him into the wilderness to experience this trial, this pyrosmos? Did he think that Jesus would be, overcome by it. No, he drove him into this pyrosmos so that he would overcome it. Not that he would be overcome by it, but that he would overcome the pyrosmos. Uh, he, with the help of the Holy Spirit, he did that. He overcame it uh, and overcame the temptation and the testing and the trial. He overcame it here in his obedience, his faithful obedience, not only to show us that it could be done, but to do it for us as our representative, as our substitute in our place. And I think that that's confirmed. I don't think that's just wishful thinking. I think it's confirmed, I believe, by the other passage that I want us to see here on the other end of Jesus' ministry later in the gospel in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. And when you turn there, I want to draw your attention to verse 41. Now, just to know what's going on and In uh, chapter 26, uh, Jesus um, is in the Garden of of Gethsemane with his disciples. He's already celebrated uh, Passover with them and and instituted the Lord's Supper. But now he is in the Garden of Gethsemane Gethsemane, um, with his disciples to pray on the night that he would be arrested. And Notice in verse 41, he tells his disciples, Watch and pray. That you may not enter into temptation. Okay, um, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, I'll, I'll give you one guess. What what Greek word there is in verse forty-one? He, it, yeah, you're right. It's pyrosmas. He says, "Watch and pray that you may not enter in. That you may not enter into pyrosmas, temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh." is weak. Watch and pray that you may not enter into Pairosmos. In other words, he's instructing his disciples here in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's telling them to pray the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into Pairosmos. That's our focus tonight. But what happens then when he tells them to pray this, what happens in the broader context here? What happens is Jesus also prays. He prays he prays, uh, hearkening in his own prayer, this this what we call the Lord's prayer, because we've already shown a few weeks ago that Jesus, at the, in this instance, he fulfills the third petition of the Lord's prayer when he prays three times to the Father, "Your will be done." But now he's he's also uh, not only obeying and fulfilling the will of God, but he would then, after he prays his own versions of these prayers, he would then give his very life for the sins of his people. Look at verse 45. Then he came to the disciples, by the way, who were sleeping. They were not watching and praying. Uh, they came, he came to his disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. What's going Just picture what's going on there. His disciples slept he told them, watch and pray, that you, you may not enter into pyrosmos, into trial, into testing, into temptation. His disciples slept. They failed to watch and pray. And that's like a that's like a microcosm of their and our failure and disobedience before the Lord. The Lord tells us to do it. And we fail to do it. We are Old Testament Israel. And Jesus then, upon their failure. Jesus then gave his life into the hands of sinners to bear the consequence of their sin, to bear in his own body the justice of God against their and our sin, against the sin of everyone who would ever turn and put their faith in Jesus Christ. Here's what Wesley Hill again said about this instance in Matthew 26. And at the first part, he quotes a a, a Catholic theologian, uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar, uh, who is insightful here? Here's what here's what Hill said. Quote, As Hans Urs von Balthasar puts it, Jesus prays in the pyrosmas, whereas the disciples prayed to be preserved from it. Jesus prays in the pyrosmas, whereas his disciples prayed to be preserved from it. And then Wesley Hill adds. The disciples may be there beside Jesus in the garden and more distantly on Calvary's hill, but they are not in the furnace of temptation with Jesus. They are onlookers, but not full participants. They witness Jesus' temptation and agony, but they do not, they cannot bear it in the way that he does. Reading these words, Wesley Hill says, reading these words of the Lord's prayer in the context of the entire gospel, like Matthew 26, we see immediately that God intends to answer and in many ways has already answered this prayer. He's already answered when we pray, lead us not into temptation, or if we want to word it as save us from the time of trial, we can see that in a sense he has already answered that that prayer because jesus has already lived this prayer in our place and we can know because of what jesus has already done you, we can we can already know of of because of the life that jesus has already lived in our place we can know already that he has already delivered us from the ultimate trial the ultimate trial would be eternal separation from him in 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 hell He has already delivered us from that ultimate trial. Um, And and he has already uh, delivered us in this life ultimately from the evil one. He did that when Jesus did that when he rose again from the dead and he crushed Satan under his feet, right? He's delivered us from the evil one when he rose from the dead. And because we are justified by faith in Christ and therefore have peace with God through, through him, we can know, we can know with all the assurance that Christ has earned for us, that the trials that do come into our lives, already been saved from the ultimate trial, already been saved from the, the, from the plots and the schemes and the plans of the evil one, we can know that whatever other trials come into our lives, come from his sovereign hand, and they are always coming into our lives in a redemptive way and lovingly have our good in view along with his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word. I pray that we would meditate on it um, for a long time. and, And in so, we would gain perspective on our own trials, our own troubles, our own hardships, and also come to a greater understanding of your goodness and grace. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.